Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 5. Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. Harry spun faster and faster, elbows tucked tightly to his sides, blurred fireplaces flashing past him until he started to feel sick and closed his eyes. Then, when at last he felt himself slowing down, he threw out his hands. I'm Casper Turkile. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Isn't saying Weasley's hard? It took me a couple takes. (laughs) Weasley's wizard wheezes. (laughs) I just think they should go through a marketing director. I was going to say maybe they need a brand rethink. Yeah. My father gets his V's and his W's confused, uh, which so why he named me Vanessa is very unclear he's to like, us. like, Vanessa. He's like, vet Vanessa, vet, <laughs> only when he's tired. But so I think W's just like freak me out anyway because of that. Maybe if we read it in a German accent, like, Wiesli's <laughs> visit Wieses, that comes off the tongue much easier. <laughs> or a Hungarian accent. It's not just German. It's true. Vanessa, as you know, we like to swap out the stories and we kind of plan the themes ahead of time. So when today's theme, masculinity, landed with your turn to tell a story, I was very excited. What do you have for us today? So I have a story that is hot off the presses. Just last week, I was walking through Harvard Square and I was listening to a podcast And I was getting pretty worked up because it was about all of the Harvey Weinstein allegations, and they were analyzing the sexual harassment accusations and how, because he was this leader in Hollywood, how it exemplifies an epidemic of assault against women. And I was, you know, walking in our neighborhood, sort of like doing some errands and listening to this podcast and obviously like very upset. And this man comes up to me and says... Oh, come on, hun. It's not all that bad. Give us a smile. And usually my like MO is just, you know, you just keep walking and you ignore it. I don't want to like get into it with somebody, especially somebody who sucks so much that they would say something like that to me. Like, this is not how I want to spend my time. But I, I don't know what happened to me in this moment, if it's because of the podcast I was listening to, just because of my mood, whatever it was. But without thinking, I just looked at this guy and I went, seriously, seriously, you're doing that today? It's 2017. And halfway through this rant, I was like, oh, he's going to start screaming back. Like, this was a tactical error. You have just made Vanessa like, shut up. So I stopped pretty quickly in my rant. And he, instead of like yelling back or getting mad, just went, oh, 
oh, I'm sorry, and sort of backed away, which I found so surprising. And it was just amazing because in answering him, I was scared of the worst kind of masculinity, the stereotype of like, oh, I'm going to make him even more aggressive and this is going to become like worse and contentious. And instead, just with the slightest provocation, that sheen of masculinity completely fell away. And instead, he just apologized. And while reading this chapter through the theme of masculinity, I think we see gender dynamics play out in a lot of different ways. But I think what this incident reminded me of is how essential gender is to all of our interactions on a daily basis, and yet that it is a completely made-up thing that if you just, like, poke at it, it can disappear in a second. So I'm excited to talk to you about that this week, Casper. Wow. Well, first of all, I'm so sorry that that happened in that instance, and I know it happens every day in so many different ways for just about every woman. And I love that there was this, like, moment of fearlessness where you just... Stupidity. Well, you know, maybe a hint of that, but also fearlessness and courage and just strength to stand up to him. But I think it does open up all sorts of questions about how is something like masculinity constructed? How do people learn to behave in manly ways? What does it mean to lose that or to have lots of it? Because as you say, there is so much at play, especially with these young men in the chapter with the whole Weasley family. There's so much to explore. Yeah. Like, is there a class where men all learn that they are allowed to ask women to smile? We all we all go to Kansas City. It actually <laughs> happens in August. Missouri or Kansas? <laughs> well, that's what we don't tell the women because <laughs> okay. they'll find us. It's just fascinating how you hear the same lines from people. And I'm like, do you subscribe to a newsletter? Like, <laughs> why do you all say these things? And I must scowl a lot. I get told to smile at least once a week. I'm so interested to know, was this man on his own? Was he in a group? He was by himself. Because I wonder if, because he was on his own, he let himself back down in a way that when men are in groups, there's this whole competitive saving face thing, which is where I think men learn to say things like that, is hearing other men say it. I just, I'm interested in thinking about how masculinity depends on that kind of group norming behavior to make it, first of all, somehow acceptable. And secondly, to make not doing it even more dangerous than doing it. That's fascinating. I completely agree that if he had been in a group and I had confronted him, it would have gotten bad. Vanessa, before we dive into the theme conversation properly, we should just remind everyone what happened. And I believe you're going first in our 30-second recap. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So Harry and the rest of the Weasleys come back through the flu network and they arrive in the kitchen. And Mr. Weasley is like, Fred and George, I can't believe that you did that. I'm so mad at you. And Molly is like, did what? And every all of the men are like, nothing. And then everybody goes upstairs and Pigwidgeon has been named Pigwidgeon. I think that's really cute. And um, we meet Bill and Charlie and they're like the sexy Weasleys. And why don't we get to hang out with them more? And um, they all have a big fancy dinner. And Harry is just like really happy to be with the Weasleys. That was fabulous. Thank you. That was very strong. Thank you. I feel like I've modeled a good way for you. And Mm. so Mm. I hope that I've inspired you. Well, I certainly will be touching on the most important part of the uh, the chapter. Oh, well, I'm very excited about that, Casper. Three, two, one. 
Mr. Crouch is the head of uh, department at the um, at the Ministry of Magic, and he's got a new intern uh, or a low-level employee uh, named Percy Weasley. And Percy is very involved. He's keen. He's eager. Um, and uh, Mr. Crouch has given him a specific project about uh, the regulations around the thickness of the bottoms of cauldrons because the uh, British market is being flooded by imports. And Percy is really working on this very important report, but he's being disturbed by his brothers, and he gets very annoyed, and he's like, some people have real work to do, and that's all there is. That is the entire chapter. That was uncanny. I mean, I think it is important to mention Mr. Crouch because the the World Cup is coming up and everyone's very excited about that. Yes, and another event. Which is highly secret. Oh, I can't tell you about it because I'm Percy. And I love that he's like trying to get everyone interested and no one is. (laughs) This is my Percy impression. I'm Percy. What's yours? Um, hello, I'm Percy Weasley. <laughs> <laughs> so, Casper, where did you see masculinity performed, let's say, in this chapter? I mean, I think we have to start with the Weasley family. It's a big family of mostly boys and Ginny, of course. So it really struck me the different ways in which the different boys inhabit both their personality, but also kind of try to signal masculinity in different ways. And we meet Charlie and Bill for the first time. So it's a very exciting moment. And... Both of them are very kind of traditional exhibitors of masculinity. Bill is very strong physically. He works for Gringotts. We know that he goes to these various destinations and has to travel and be an adventurer and kind of no doubt, you know, depends on his own skill and strength. And Charlie works with dragons. So he's got this burn and he's very cool. And again, just his physical strength is really clear. Fred and George, on the other hand, are much more about their social power and and actually their business acumen, right? That we're going to see them become very successful entrepreneurs. And so, again, they fulfill this kind of like breadwinner, like bootstrapping kind of male ideal. Through humor, too. Through humor. And like demeaning. Yeah, making fun of others, especially, you know, maybe not as strong men. And, And we see that in the last chapter with Dudley. And in this chapter with Percy. Exactly. And so I think Percy is really interesting because Percy isn't cool, isn't socially very adept, perhaps, doesn't fulfill the same things that the other brothers do. But he's still reaching to have power in some way. But for him, it's about political power. So he's reaching for the kind of status and positional power that he would get in the ministry, which really leaves the question for me about Ron. How is Ron kind of signaling his masculinity? Because he plays second fiddle to Harry, but of course he also gets status by being associated with Harry. It left me with the question of how is Ron engaging his masculinity? Do we see that change throughout these first four books? Is there more that's going to come? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. I think that there is certainly more that is going to come, right? As he really, I think starting in this book, rebels against Harry in some big ways, thinks about, you know, putting his name in for the Goblet of Fire, his competitiveness with Crumb. One of the ways that I see him signaling his masculinity in a way that is very recognizable to me, and let's just say up front, these are broad brushstrokes we are painting in, but The way that he's a sports fan, you know, his walls are plastered with the posters and it's this conversation about like, well, you know, Bulgaria has crumb, but Ireland is going to win. And this fandom, I think, can often be a way of exhibiting masculinity. Obviously, a lot of women are sports fans, but I still think that I think that it is very hard to have a fan conversation about sports 
and not have it be at least a little bit about gender, even when women are fans. Well, and the other way around, too, it's like it's very hard to be a man and not be able to have fan conversation about sports. Yeah. And I do think that it's one of the plus sides of being a woman is that you are protected from the assumption that you follow sports. That is a whole series of boring conversation that I am just protected from. And it's a social status, right? Like, I actually do like baseball. So the moment that I can talk sports with certain men, it elevates you in their eyes immediately if you are a woman who can talk sports. Whereas, right, with a man, it's just an assumption that you have to be. Where it's these, like, bonus points as a woman if you're able to talk sport, right? And we see that later in these books. Like, everybody loves that Ginny can, like, be rough and tumble with the boys and like that's an asset it's an asset to be able to perform the right amount of masculinity as a woman but you also have to have the flip side right Hermione might punch Draco in the face but we celebrate her in this weird way when she emerges later in this book as this like vision of beauty at the Yule Ball and I think you know for women if they only inhabit that kind of bonus point masculinity piece without also then being able to be the beautiful princess actually it becomes a negative oh absolutely you have to perform the exact right amount of masculinity as a woman too much is bad and too little you're like a precious princess, right? It's sort of like a video game. Like, there are ways to collect coins, and at a certain point, like, those coins become sort of poisonous. Yeah, I mean, that poisonous word is so right on, because especially in gay culture, there's this whole to be masked, to be masculine, to be straight acting, is this very desirable thing. I mean, of course, what we desire, you know, erotically can be a wonderful, playful area in our lives. And when that kind of bleeds into the rest of our lives and we start to ostracize men who maybe perform a lot of femininity, right? Like there's something very kind of anti-trans in there. There's something very anti-woman in there. And you see that in gay culture. It can be very ostracizing to women and lesbian women, especially like there's a nearly an internalized homophobia in some of the ways in which gay men desire one another. Like, we get trapped in these constructs. Yeah, and I think to your point earlier, it is oppressive for everyone, right? This idea of the ideal masculine man. And I think that a moment that we see Arthur, who in a lot of ways I think Arthur is a real paragon of having transcended things like this, Mm -hmm. right? Like, he seems like a truly wise caring person who like doesn't seem trapped by a lot of he's not wealth seeking he's not power seeking he he wants to be a good dad and a good citizen like and he likes electric plugs he likes plugs like great <laughs> you know he's got a hobby but i see him as siding with the boys against his wife in right. a moment in this chapter they emerge out of the fireplace. And Fred and George have just done something terrible. They have tormented a chubby child. And they did something bad for like muggle wizard relations. And what if they had gone back before Dudley had eaten the candy and Arthur hadn't been there to fix Dudley's tongue? So this this is a really bad thing that they have done with dire consequences under the guise of like silly pranking. And then when Molly comes into the room, Arthur protects Fred and George from Molly, was not planning on telling Molly. He uses Molly as a threat mechanism of like... Just wait until I tell your mother kind of thing. yeah. Yeah, and his masculinity seems to be at play with wanting to side with the boys and wanting to protect like 
on some level, these were just like boys having fun and boys being boys. But I think everybody is losing by not sitting down and talking to Fred and George. I think Molly is losing out. I think that Arthur is losing out. And I think that Fred and George are. And this family needs to have a conversation about Fred and George's actual aspirations. Molly is saying some really awful things about their lack of ambition and their lack of academic acumen. And I think that gender and masculinity is part of that. I think that a totally different conversation would be happening if it was a young girl acting out in this way. I completely agree. There's two things in that that I want to unpack more, which is I think you point to that kind of primal, maybe Oedipal conflict between father and sons in the sense that Arthur wants to signal that he's still down, right? Like he he gets the joke, like, ha ha ha, because if he's not, he's going to be ostracized by the boys. And that signals ultimately like his replacement by them in a way that is threatening to his identity as a man. Mm -hmm. And secondly, what you were saying about Arthur signals that he's going to tell Molly, but isn't actually going to pass on the information. I feel like Molly, who then comes in and actually deals with the situation, is doing all of the emotional labor of the parenting. And Arthur kind of just sits down again and gets back to his sausages or something. And that's a pattern we've seen a couple of times within that household, you know, as well as everywhere else. Think of Hermione being stuck between Ron and Harry when they're not talking to each other. Like, we see that theme over and over again. Yeah, and why isn't Molly invited to the World Cup? She's, like, left behind doing the physical labor of parenting as well, right? She's getting the books and supplies, not just for her own children, but also for Hermione and Harry, which is, like, very sweet, but... Everybody else is just going on vacation. Oh, but Vanessa, she's more like you. She's like, thank God I don't have to have those conversations. Sure. Thank God I don't have to have those conversations. But that doesn't mean that I want to be doing chores while you all are off having fun. Right. (laughs) Like, I don't want to be at the sporting game watching the exploitation of male bodies for the benefit of capitalism. Sure. That is true that I do not find that enjoyable. But I would like to be like in my bath with my lavender salts. I don't want to be like running around town. Schlepping. Yeah, I totally get it. I want to return to Charlie and Bill because their physical descriptions are so stark. And we've explored that from the very first chapter when we were hearing about Petunia's long neck and Vernon's, you know, short neck. And here we hear that Charlie has calluses. He has these strong hands and muscly arms and that Bill is cool and he's tall and But Bill also has long hair and an earring, right? Two things that would traditionally signify femininity in some way. And yet Bill is able to invert that and play with gender in a way that it actually makes him all the more masculine. And I don't know, I just find that fascinating, like how the rules that we think we have for things like gender can be played with in a way that are surprising, but also then reaffirm the original boundaries. Does that make sense? Right. So it's saying I'm so masculine that I can perform a little bit of femininity. That is how much of a man I am. Exactly. It's like Halloween when straight men do drag in a way that it's like doesn't risk their you know, masculinity in any way. In fact, there's such a man to do it. Right. He has the balls to do it. Right. So um, Mrs. Weasley says to Bill, I wish you'd let me give your hair a trim. And Ginny says, I like it. You're so old-fashioned, Mom. And then she puts it in context and is like, anyway, it's nowhere near as long as Professor Dumbledore's. It's just interesting to me that it's the only girl in the family who comes to his defense. I can't imagine Fred and George being like, lay off about his hair, Mom. But I also wonder if she sees her own liberation wound up in 
him having more freedom because if Bill is allowed to present femininity in some way, she's going to be able to present more masculinity. And like Ginny's a badass, right? Like she's a fighter. And I think she feels constrained by, you know, the victim role that she's been put in since book two. And maybe Bill being different allows her to be different. I love that. And I love the idea of younger children intentionally exploiting their older siblings to, like, make room for themselves, right? Totally. Yeah. And I think this is a generational thing. I mean, I think the way that whether it's younger kids coming out earlier, whether it's younger kids transitioning or, you know, just blurring the lines of gender identities, I feel like young people consistently are the ones at the front edge of crying out against the hurtful ideas of gender where we ask the first thing when when a baby is born, is it a boy or a girl? Who cares? Why is that the question? It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. We're basically asking what genitalia does the baby have? <laughs> like, why? So let's free ourselves from that. And I think young people are doing that better than anyone. So, but Casper, before we end this theme conversation, I'm just curious if you see something gendered around the fact that nobody is going to look for Bertha Jorkins. I'm wondering if Ludo Bagman is signaling some sort of masculinity of like sink or swim, like people either find their way back or they don't. And I'm curious if she were a man, if he would have sent people out to look for her. You know, there was a conversation last summer about why it is that when blonde white women go missing, it becomes like national news. But when women of color go missing, you can just never hear about it. And I think that, again, it's about assumptions of like, well, culturally, this makes sense for this kind of person to disappear. And how untrue that is, and how incredibly bigoted and dangerous and violent those racial and gendered assumptions are. These cultural assumptions that we make about each other based on completely arbitrary things like race and gender have such catastrophic impact. And again, I just really think if we had been looking for Bertha Jorkins faster, it is entirely possible that Voldemort would not have been able to rise again. If we were to question our own assumptions as a society, when we look away from certain crimes against certain people, I think we would be able to interrupt cycles that impact all of us so much earlier. And we should be doing these things for their own sakes. We should be looking for Bertha to look for Bertha, not because it also impacts men. And we should be caring about women of color disappearing because they are humans, not because it impacts white people. But the fact that we don't see our fates is intrinsically linked to one another, even when people look different from us, I feel like is being demonstrated in this moment of Ludo Bagman just being like, oh, Bertha. It's time for our spiritual practice. And for the last time in a little while, we're doing Lectio Divina. Vanessa, I'm going to ask you to find a random piece of text from chapter five. What can you find? This is a long and not very good sentence. Well, let's read it anyway. Okay. Harry and Ron edged out of the kitchen, and they, Hermione and Ginny, set off along the narrow hallway and up the rickety staircase that zigzagged through the house to the upper stories. So step one, narratively, where are we in the text? We're in the burrow. Yes, we've just arrived back in the burrow, and Arthur is yelling at Fred and George for having given Dudley a toffee. And Molly comes in and is like, what are you 
talking about. And Hermione is like, hey, Ginny, Harry, Ron, let's, like, all go unpack Harry's bag together. And Ron's like, I don't have any packing. (laughs) And Hermione's like, no, let's go. And George and Fred are like, welcome to. And Molly's like, no, you won't. And so this is um, Harry and Ron are edging out of the kitchen. They're getting out of the way. And they're going up. And it's sort of describing the way the borough is set up, that it's a long hallway. And then it's a rickety staircase that, you know, zigzags. So it's describing the borough. So thinking about step two, allegorically, we're looking for the stories or symbols or images that we're reminded of in this passage. I'll read it out for us again. Harry and Ron edged out of the kitchen, and they, Hermione and Ginny, set off along the narrow hallway and up the rickety staircase that zigzagged through the house to the upper stories. I love the upper stories, Mm. because obviously they're talking about the stories of a house, but it's also all of the different stories of a house, like Mm. all the different things that happen in a house. You know, when you go to your childhood home or to a place that has significance for you. You know, you walk into a certain room and all of these memories and stories come back to you. It makes me wonder if the burrow has to be shaped in this way because it holds so many stories. Mm. So many people have been raised here and so many childhoods and friends and, you know, the Order of the Phoenix and, like, so much has happened here that it almost has to be zigzagged in order to contain everything. I I love the idea that this house has, like, changed shape around the humanness that has taken place within its walls. I love that. And I, I was really thinking about that zigzagged words as well. I was thinking in sailing, often to get across a piece of water, you can't just go in a straight line. It depends so much on where the wind is coming from. So if you're sailing and the wind isn't coming at the right angle, you have to kind of zigzag your way to your target. And I feel like that's kind of like life, right? Like even if you know where you're going, it isn't always exactly clear how you can get there. You you have to go from place to place in order to find your way there. And I feel like And that's definitely true for Harry. And going to the burrow is not necessarily where he wants to end up, but this is such an important place for him to go from Privet Drive. And so I guess it's like what you're saying with the stories actually shaping the house, that the places that we go to also shape us and that we might not always know exactly why we're going to these places. There's just the wind is taking us there and then it takes us somewhere else. And slowly but surely we we get closer to our destination. I thought the other day about how I've lived in Harvard Yard for over five years now. And I, you know, thanks to my iPhone, I know that I walk about six or seven miles a day. And how many hundreds of miles I have walked without ever sort of going anywhere, right? (laughs) I like, I'm still right in the middle of the yard. I have not made it very far. I've just zigzagged. I've just ping ponged along. How many miles have I traversed walking from like the yard to the divinity school and back, right? But a whole life has happened. So much has happened to me in such a teeny tiny amount of space. That was beautiful, Vanessa, because you kind of took us into step three where we really want to think about our, our own experience. Like what reflections do we have from our own life that communicates with this passage? So do you want to read it one more time? Yes. Thank you. Harry and Ron edged out of the kitchen, and they, Hermione and Ginny, set off along the narrow hallway and up the rickety staircase that zigzagged through the house to the upper stories. 
Oh, my God. Okay, so the thing that I'm thinking of is that, you know, when we were small as kids and we'd have friends over, it was so easy to transform our house into a magical place and that the hallway suddenly became an ocean and that the couch became a boat and like we had to survive the storms and I maybe that's what's happening here that borough house is actually totally fine <laughs> right like it's solid it's stable but the kids are in this moment of trepidation and the parents are angry and they're like a little bit afraid and so they're having to like tiptoe out the edging out of the room they're going on the rickety staircase in the narrow hall especially when you're young and your imagination is so free I, I'm imagining that maybe they're doing the same thing where that journey up like two flights of stairs suddenly becomes this great adventure. I made the big mistake of going back to my elementary school. And oh my God, you know, as a first and second grader, you were in a different part of campus than the third and fourth graders. When I was six, it factually was on the other side of the world. Turns out that they were like across a yard. (laughs) (laughs) Like going back as an adult to places that youth felt were magical as a child, it's hysterical. Maybe that's why they don't have parents weekend at Hogwarts because they're like, don't let the parents come back because actually this building is like not that special. (laughs) You're like, oh, the stairs don't actually move. It's just that I got lost. (laughs) (laughs) So that brings us to step four, which is really thinking about what is the text inviting us to do. And traditionally, we we think about what is God asking us to do through this passage. And we ask, what is this text inviting us to do? Would you read it one more time for us, Vanessa? Happily. Harry and Ron edged out of the kitchen, and they, Hermione and Ginny, set off along the narrow hallway and up the rickety staircase that zigzagged through the house to the upper stories. So what I feel called to do is I feel like I have a couple of big projects that I'm working on right now that I know what I want the finished project to look like, but I have a really hard time trusting that all my zigzagging will get me there. And I feel called to sort of just like see the tasks that I put in front of myself and not get too worried about all the zigzagging, especially, you know, disappointments can feel like you've gone back so many steps and just to like remember that like zigzagging is part of the strategy from your sailing metaphor that is often how you have to get from point a to point b those aren't disappointments it's just like part of the process i have always despised the idea of like two steps forward one step back and zigzagging is such a better metaphor you're right i love that and you're just taking a step to the side in order to go forward now that's great and i feel like my brain is so scattered that Even meetings that feel useless or deadlines that I miss or whatever it is, I feel like it probably has worked on my brain and helped me learn anyway. And so to stop thinking of my life as this linear path, there isn't really wasted time. There's just time. This is maybe too abstract, Vanessa, but I have a little niece and she is the most beautiful, wonderful little niece in the whole world. And I just hope that As she grows up and one day, hopefully, if I have kids, I hope I have a house or a place where, like, kids can go on, like, wild, crazy adventures. I, Yeah, maybe that's not, like, an action, but... I think the action is maybe not worrying about a mess as an adult. Yeah. And, like, just letting a house be that for a kid. For a kid, especially, yeah. And to let it be a place of adventure and discovery and, and stories. If we can do that, then we're doing our jobs. 
as adults, I think. I completely agree. This week's voicemail is from Veronica Barchok. Hi, Ariana, Casper, Vanessa. Um, greetings from Poland. I started to listen to your podcast while I was in Belgium with my Slovak friend. So you have fans from uh, also Europe. So maybe you should come, just uh, like a thought. Um, and I just listened to the new chapter of Cobble of Fire, the first chapter, which was in time for my birthday. So thank you. Um, and it was through the theme of instinct. And I made this connection between Frank and Harry that Frank wakes up in the middle of the night because his leg hurts. And here's Voldemort. And who do we know that something hurts him when Voldemort is near? Well, Harry. Um, so they both have this same instinct in them. I know it's like far-fetched, but his leg is probably hurting because of some kind of wound that he got from a war. Harry got his car from trying Voldemort trying to kill him. But also the thing is that, you know, you have this reaction like fight or flight and they are going to just fight like instinct for them. is just like fight it instantly. And for me, you also have like mental scars that are not visible. And I have one of these mental scars is being a child of al- alcoholic, which is not, of course, visible, but it causes a lot of pain and is getting worse with time. But my instinct is always to run away, to flight whenever I can. And then I'm thinking that maybe I should be more like Harry to fight it. Of course, we know that didn't turn out well for Frank, but he kept his principles. So it was just like a connection I wanted to share you with you. Um, thank you very much for your work. It's uh, just a sunshine in my day. And I hope you do more and even more often because it would be awesome. Thank you, guys. Bye. Let's go in order of importance. Happy birthday. We would love to come to Europe. You're amazing. We gasped when we collectively listened to your comparison of Harry's scar and Frank's leg. I think that's so interesting. I love that. I do want to say that I do think that fight or flight is a false dichotomy. And I think that we often judge ourselves for those instincts when I actually think the whole point of the podcast is exactly what you're doing right now. We are trying to go through this process in order to train ourselves to pick our values so that when we are put in a tough situation, we can pick our action rather than let our gut evolutionary instinct take over. We are trying to train ourselves, like we talked about in that very first episode, to commit ourselves to things like hospitality so that when something scary happens, we've trained ourselves in our values. And it sounds like that is what you're doing, but I just think it's really important for us to not judge ourselves in that process. We should be picking our values, and then trying our best to live up to them and knowing that it's a process and that we're just always going to try. Thank you so much, Veronica. And you allow me to say my one word of Polish, cześć, which means hi. (laughs) (laughs) Casper, now we get the chance to bless a character from this chapter. Percy is in the chapter, so do you want to go ahead and bless Percy? Listen, he is working really hard, and, like, we can tease him about it, and we can make fun of him, but, like, 
if you're trying to do your job and other people are making noise around you just on purpose to distract you or annoy you, or they don't respect what you're doing, it's so frustrating. So I'm getting very defensive of Percy here, but my blessing is for Percy or anyone who feels like they have to work in conditions that are just not only suboptimal, but like purposefully annoying. Vanessa, how about you? I want to bless our dear Jenny because I think she has the funniest line in this whole chapter, which is the four musketeers are all upstairs and they're talking about Fred and George's joke company and how they've been like trying to make all these things and how there have always been really loud explosions in their room. And Jenny says, I just thought they liked the noise. And I just think it's hysterical how little esteem she holds her brothers in. Like, you know... They're going to become like gabillionaires doing this. And there's just something about family, right, where no matter how impressive they are, they like just like loud noises. And so I just love seeing friend George through Jenny's point of view of like they're just these dumb doofuses. So a blessing for sisters, basically. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your two-minute voicemails sent to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be reading The Portkey through the theme of acceptance. This episode was produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Casper Terkyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week's voicemail was thanks to Veronica Barchok. Our social media manager is Harshi Hedegay. We'd like to thank, as always, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. What's your Bill impression? Just like, hey, I'm Bill Weasley. (laughs) Yeah, Bill Weasley's from Texas. (laughs) I got my cowboy boots. What is my Bill impression? Hmm. I feel like Bill Weasley would be played by a young Hugh Jackman. Oh, my God. Right? With red hair. Yeah. Like, I I can't. Oh, he's Australian. Yeah, I'm I'm Bill Weasley. And I sing and dance. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. It just got hot in here, right? (laughs) Wolverine Weasley. (laughs) Or Wolverine Weasley. Wolverine Weasley. (laughs) 